this morning by sharing a story of something truly incredible that transpired this week. I'm going to ask you to hang with me throughout the entirety of this story so that you don't reach a wrong conclusion two or three sentences in. Last month, I was invited to take part in a meeting hosted by the National Faith Advisory Board at Mar-a-Lago in West Palm Beach, Florida. The NFAB is a coalition of pastors and faith leaders who advise political leaders on matters pertaining to religious freedom, life, marriage, parental rights, and sexuality. Although I've been invited to Mar-a-Lago before, I've never been able to make the trip because I simply refuse to miss a Sunday here at Pursuit. This year, I think I will have missed a grand total of two Sundays. One because I was in the Holy Land and another because I was addressing a group of business leaders as their keynote speaker at an event that I felt a spiritual imperative to attend. This summit at Mar-a-Lago was comprised of about 30 pastors from around the nation who were invited to meet with former President Trump to give input, feedback, and counsel on a wide spectrum of legislation related to the faith community. I flew out on the red eye Monday night and I landed just in time to grab breakfast and get dressed for our meeting with the former president. That evening, while eating dinner in the ballroom of Mar-a-Lago, we were able to discuss issues like school choice, the war in Israel, NATO, tax policy, religious freedom issues, pro-life legislation, the LGBTQ agenda, amongst other things. Hear me very clearly today. My commitment as a leader and as a pastor is that I am willing to walk through any open door that God places in my pathway if I feel like it can advance the gospel and serve as a platform to advocate for the values that we hold near and dear to our hearts as Bible-believing followers of Jesus. Hear me. This is not an endorsement. This is not a political statement. This was a God-given divine opportunity to be a voice of truth in a realm that is so often dominated by darkness. I take serious the instruction of 1 Timothy 2, where the Apostle Paul says, I urge you, first of all, pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. When Trump was elected in 2016, I led the church in prayer on his behalf. When Biden was elected in 2020, I led the church in prayer on his behalf. The scriptures don't say only pray for the people you voted for. It says pray for all those who are in authority. Now, twice in the last six months, I have received specific prophetic words about being in a small room with the former president and being able to be a voice of truth for the values of our community. I believe in prophecy, and I believe that this was an opportunity for those prophetic words to come alive. Because of the tight security and the protocols of such a gathering, none of the pastors had an opportunity to meet the former president in person. It was a group meeting over dinner with an opportunity to corporately share, and then it was over. After the dinner concluded, people filed out of the venue and began to travel back to their respective hotels. After everyone had left, I found myself standing alone in the lobby of this estate, thinking to myself, 
I didn't travel all this way not to find a way to personally meet and greet the former president and share some thoughts of my own. So I did something a little naughty. <clears throat> I wandered the property, sticking my head into random rooms all across this 14-acre 126 room, 63,000 square foot mansion, just making sure I'd seen everything there was to see before calling it a night. <laughs> Around midnight, I found myself sitting on a couch on the patio, watching a group of people enjoy their cocktails at a venue that requires a $250,000 membership fee to even get through the front doors. And it was at this time that I noticed a Secret Service agent off to my left who was motioning in my direction. Oh, I knew what was about to happen. Everyone had left. I was the only pastor still around. I was in an area of the compound I was not supposed to be in. And the Secret Service agent was either sending me home or even worse, sending me to Guantanamo. I walked over to the agent and I begun my speech. I know I'm not supposed to be here. I profusely apologize. I'll pack up and leave. No harm, no foul. I just traveled from Seattle. I was hoping to meet the president before I took off. I totally understand. No worries. No reason to make a big stink out of it. I'll be on my way. And all of a sudden, a miracle took place. That agent interrupted my apology and looked at me and he said, do you know who I am? I said, no, sir. He said, I am the lead special agent who oversees all of Mar-a-Lago and is personally in charge of the safety of the Trump family, both at home and abroad. And I recognize you. You're that pastor from Seattle. He said this and I've been watching your sermons online. You, he said this, you need to know God is taking your voice to the nations. Keep preaching, keep leading, don't give up. And he ended his statement with this, God is using pursuit in places you would never imagine. And wouldn't you know it, God used that interaction to lead to another one, and I wanted to show you that picture today. Now, I know Trump looked like a wax figure in this picture, but trust me, that was real him. And I know what you're thinking. Oh, of course, Pastor Russ going to show a picture of him and the former president because that's just who we know Russ is. Well, let me show you some other pictures that may surprise you today. In 2016, I had the privilege of meeting with Democrat Congressman Rick Larson in his office in Washington, D.C., in 2019, I met with the former chief warlord of Liberia, a man who went by the tribal name of General Butt Naked. <laughs> he went by this name because during the Civil War, he stripped off all his clothes and he'd go fight in the battle. And the legend was he would become invisible. 
he was personally credited with killing nearly 30,000 children in that nation's civil war. And then guess what? God got him. He got born again. And now he preaches all over the nation, seeing tens of thousands come to saving faith in Christ Jesus. I want to let you know with all sincerity today, I'd ride horses with President Vladimir Putin if he invited me. I'd meet with the Pope if he didn't try and convert me. I'd hang with the President of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, if he wouldn't try and kill me. And I'd even go to a costume party with the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, if he'd ever reply to my emails. Let me be clear, we are not a Republican church. We are not a Democrat church. We aren't a black church and we're not a white church. We're not a poor church, we're not a rich church, we're not a young church, we're not an old church. We are a Jesus church. And anytime a national leader from any party is willing to meet to discuss the topics of religious freedom, you can go ahead and sign me up. Because when God gives you a voice, your job is to steward it regardless of the popularity of the audience you stand before. Joseph was a voice to Pharaoh. Esther was a voice to Xerxes. Daniel was a voice to Nebuchadnezzar. Nehemiah was a voice to Cyrus. John the Baptist was a voice to Herod. Paul was a voice to Caesar. And if the church can be a voice to political leaders, whether they are from the left wing or the right wing, then I say, sign me up for he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And on a related note, I've got good news. On Tuesday, December 12th at 1.30 p.m., nearly 425,000 signatures were submitted to the Secretary of State's office in Olympia, Washington, which means this. Initiative 2081, the Parents' Bill of Rights, the initiative sponsored by the Pursuit PAC, has received enough signatures and now will be placed on next year's ballot to be voted on in Washington State. Don't tell me the church is dead in the Northwest. We help rally about half a million signatures, telling the government, keep your hands off our kids. It is not the government's responsibility to raise our children, and parents are both the first and the last line of authority in the medical decisions of their minor children. And on top of that, last Sunday, we had a miracle that I truly believe is unparalleled in the history of the churches in the Northwest. And I am pleased to report today that Pursuit raised over $6.1 million to help with our January 7th launch in Kirkland, Washington.
I wanted to share with you this morning on the topic of money and finance because nothing is more controversial than what a church does with its money. It was so funny because before I could even start to celebrate the miracle that God had performed in our midst, out of the woodwork came all the drive-by critics. What does a church need with all that money? Well, let me tell you, a building of this size is not cheap in Kirkland. Outfitting 112,000 square feet of facility space is not inexpensive in this economy. Hiring staff who can help us on the east side is not a low-priced endeavor. Repaving a parking lot that fits a 1,000 cars doesn't normally happen for free. Cleaning carpets, repainting walls, hanging new signage, updating bathrooms. Now, you may not think that those things are important, but I'm trying to set an atmosphere where there is the least amount of distractions or barriers that would keep people from encountering God. And I believe the way that we take care of a building tells the community, we're waiting for you, we're prepared for you, we're glad to have you, and this is a safe place that you can call home to experience the power in the presence of God. Here's the reality, ministry requires money. The scriptures record that even Jesus had a treasurer. Somebody told me, pursuit shouldn't be acquiring another building. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Why is it that the only time critics quote scripture that are quoting the words of Judas? <laughs> I've often found that the folks who have the loudest opinions about money are some of the least generous people I know. You want to address the issue of poverty in the region? Tithe to a spirit-filled church in the Pacific Northwest. Because when people get healthy in their soul, they'll get healthy in their finances. You want to address the issue of drug abuse in Seattle? Great. Give to a spirit-filled church in the Pacific Northwest. Because when people get healthy in their soul, they will find freedom from their addictions. In 2023 alone, Washington State spent $143 million of taxpayer money and only managed to get 126 people out of homelessness. Do the math. We've tried the secular way. We've tried the governmental way. Now, let's try the Jesus way. Because when the church thrives, the city will rejoice. The region will be transformed and cultural renewal is always downstream from spiritual renewal. When I was in Bible college, one of my professors would often say, Russell, watch out. Every pastor has to be careful of the three great pitfalls of leadership. Gold, girls, and power. The problem is it takes all three of those things to run an organization. But if your mind ain't discipled on the proper role that these three play, you'll end up bowing at the wrong altar, becoming possessed by the wrong spirit, and being enamored by the wrong stuff. Here's the reality. I don't think that we got a money problem in the church. I think that we have a priority problem. Meaning this, instead of money being a tool in our hand, it becomes a poison in our heart because we struggle in determining how to properly order the reality of finances in our lives. See, God is a God of order, meaning when your life is out of order, it's impossible for him to bless it because blessing added to chaos only creates more chaos. 
which is why so often God will delay a blessing until he has time to fix what is broken so that by the time your blessing arrives, your heart is healthy enough to receive it. When we hear the term out of order, often we think of that vending machine at the airport that hasn't worked in a decade. But when I use that term today, I don't want you to think about something that is not working. I want you to think about something that is working, but it is working in the wrong order. In August of this year, the National Bank of Ireland had a technical glitch that resulted in all the ATMs of the nation dispensing free cash. As word spread, thousands of people began to stream out of their houses and businesses to line up at every available ATM so that they could withdraw the max amount. The mistake was so costly, it nearly resulted in Ireland having their credit rating downgraded. But it wasn't that the ATMs weren't working. In fact, these ATMs were doing their exact jobs, which was to dispense money to people on the street. The problem was these machines were out of their operational order because usually an ATM machine will only dispense money only after it verifies what you have in your account. But this time they just sent money flying out by faith. And it almost led to the collapse of the financial markets across all of Ireland. Let me give you another example. Your problem is not that you're having sex. Your problem is that sex before you are married is sex that is in the wrong order. And it will only lead to pain in your life. The order of scripture is not sex, then marriage. It is marriage, then sex. Your problem is not that you have money. Your problem is that having money before Christ has you is money that is in the wrong order and it will only lead to pain in your life. The order of scripture is not money first and God second. It is God first and everything else as a distant second. A group of sociologists conducted a study a number of years ago asking people this simple question. What would you be willing to do for $10 million? 25% of people said that they'd be willing to leave their church or change their religion. 23% of people said they'd be willing to become prostitutes for a week. 16% of people said they'd give up their American citizenship. Another 16% that they would leave their spouses. 7% of people said that they would kill a stranger. And 3% of people said, which this is the only one that I can sympathize with, they would put up one of their children for adoption. <laughs> now here's the reality. The Bible offers 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses on faith, and more than 2,000 verses on money, tithing, possessions, and giving. See, money is spiritual whether you like it or not. In fact, 15% of everything that Jesus ever taught was on the topic of money and possessions, more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. And why is this the case? Because the Bible says in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's my thesis this morning. A lot of folks may have Jesus in their hearts, but they got the enemy in their bank accounts. 
and we need a reordering of our spiritual priorities if we want to live lives that are pleasing to God. In Acts 5, the historian of the early church, a man by the name of Luke, records this story. Starting in verse 1, the scriptures say this, but there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. Before going any further, I want to expose you to the pattern of Scripture. At the end of Acts 4, which precedes the story that I read to you today, the Holy Spirit shows up and shakes the place where the disciples are gathered. The net result of that activity is that supernatural generosity breaks out and people are motivated to fund the mission of God. The same thing happens at the end of Acts 2. The Holy Spirit shows up and shakes the upper room where the disciples are gathered. A wind fills the place. A fire rests on their head. They speak in tongues. Peter preaches. 3,000 people get saved. And the net result is that supernatural generosity breaks out. People are selling properties, emptying bank accounts, liquidating assets, gathering resources, and positioning themselves towards generosity. Why? Because a genuine a genuine move of God's spirit always produces a genuine move of ours. If God shows up and we're still stingy, did God really show up? If God shows up and we're still bitter, did God really show up? If God shows up and we still can't forgive someone who wronged us, did God really show up? I think a revival without generosity is nothing more than emotionalism and hype. When the Spirit of God shows up in a room, you don't got to announce it, advertise it, beg for it, manipulate it. When the Spirit of God shows up and shakes a place and fills the hearts of the people, the natural response is for God so loved the world that he gave and for I so loved God, I will give as well. No one taught on generosity in Acts 2 or in Acts 4. The giving of resources was a natural byproduct of a revival environment because people wanted to be a part of the global harvest that was beginning to start. The early church understood when I give, the breakthrough on the church becomes breakthrough in my life. They understood if I will partner in this moment, what I am seeing God do for others, God in fact will do for me. Do you know that right now, as we gather for our 1030 service here in Snohomish. There is an Assemblies of God church in Arkansas that is holding their service as well. That pastor called me last week. He said, we're taking an offering for you on Sunday morning. We want to help support the Kirkland launch. Not only that, he said, I'm writing you a $10,000 check that will be coming your way. Not only that, I'm committing to support Pursuit $1,000 a month for the next 12 months. I said, why are you doing this? He said, because I am convinced that the breakthrough you are experiencing in the Northwest, if I will partner with that in faith, I will have that same breakthrough in the state of Arkansas. See, generosity is a sign. My heart's been touched by God, but this spiritual encounter is not just so I can get goosebumps during a worship song. This spiritual encounter impacts my material world as well. <laughs> and watch how the story continues. Verse two, but Ananias, he brought part of the money to the apostles, but here was his problem. He claimed it was the full amount. 
with his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? You've lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. The property was yours to sell or not sell as you wished. And after selling it, the money was yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us. You was lying to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what happened. Now let me remind you, this is New Testament, not Old Testament. This ain't one of those stories of the Hebrew children in the Egyptian wilderness wandering for 40 years and we kind of play it off like, well, that's the way God worked back then, but thank God he don't work that way today. <laughs> Peter confronts Ananias. He says, this ain't about lying to me or you. This is about lying to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit ain't a force, it's a person. And you can grieve that spirit, you can offend that spirit, or you can welcome that spirit, but you have lied to that spirit. And Satan has filled your heart. Here's what I would submit to you today, Pursuit. Ananias is a perfect example of a man who is living an out-of-order life. Nobody asked him to sell the land. Nobody asked him to say that he was going to give 100% of the proceeds to the church. But Ananias wanted to appear as something he wasn't. He wanted to appear radically generous. So he said, I gave it all, when what he really meant was, I gave something small. When the need to appear one way to man is more important than the desire to appear the right way before God, you know, I am living an out of order life. See, we got an appearance problem in our world today. A lot of people want to appear rich, so they buy cars they can't afford from brands they can't pronounce in order to impress friends they don't have. <laughs> Folks want to appear smart, so they'll lie on their resume to lie in the job they can't handle, trying to perform tasks they ain't qualified for in an attempt to address an insecurity that will not go away. A lot of folks want to appear wealthy. They want to appear generous. They want to appear spiritual. They want to appear smart because in a consumerism culture, your appearance is the most valuable thing you have. But the Bible says something different. It says, one day we will appear before God in Zion. And you might fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool God any of the time. My life is out of its divine order when I allow the pressure of appearance to become more important than the mandate for obedience. See, money ain't evil. But when I love money and use people, instead of loving people and using money, my life is out of order. And the most important thing that I can teach my money to do is obey my spirit instead of follow my flesh. See, Ananias and Sapphira had the capacity to be generous, but instead they chose stinginess and it ended up costing them their lives. People say, well, why did they fall over dead? Oh, it's easy. It's simple. It was just their outside reality catching up with their inside reality. Hear me, friend, in the church, generosity is not measured by equal giving. 
but instead by equal sacrifice. The story is told that one day a beggar by the roadside asked for alms from Alexander the Great as he passed by. The man was poor and watched, and the man was poor and wretched, and he was desperate for a copper penny or two just to survive another day. Yet as the emperor walked by, he threw him several gold coins. The emperor's servant was so astonished at Alexander's generosity that he commented, Sir, copper coins would have adequately met the beggar's need. Why give him gold? Alexander responded in royal fashion, Copper coins would suit the beggar's need, but gold coins suit Alexander's giving. My wife, Maria, and I, we give. Every two weeks when I get my paycheck, the first bill that gets paid ain't the cable bill, it ain't the auto loan, it ain't the mortgage, it's my tithe. One of the reasons, just to be honest, that I've refused to join a denomination is because many of them require the pastor and his wife to tithe to the denominational headquarters. On principle, I refuse to do that. The tithe belongs to the storehouse, which is the local church, and I am not exempt from tithing to this church, even if I'm its lead pastor. Now, last week during Miracle Offering Sunday, the Lord dropped a number in my heart that Maria and I should contribute to the Kirkland campus. And immediately, my flesh, which it's really good at this, started to provide me with a laundry list of excuses. The first one sounded like this. Come on, Russ. You already put in a ton of overtime. That should count as your offering right there. Come on, Russ. You already pay your tithe. That's more than most people. Come on, Russ. There are folks wealthier than you. They can give and not even notice it. Come on, Russ. Think about that new car you could buy with that money. But here's the truth. Every believer is called into the ministry of giving. Regular, consistent, extravagant, normative giving. And when you make a decision to give, hear me, you are not saying I agree with everything Russell does because Russell does not even agree with everything that Russell does. What you are saying is I agree with God. Amen. And hear me, I simply refuse to allow the bad teaching in the past in regards to money to be the reason why we can't appropriately teach on that topic today. Because God forbid that I allow somebody else's sin to therefore create the sin of selfishness inside of me. It was funny, in the midst of celebrating all of the different miracles that have happened this week, the Lord rebuked me in his kindness. He said, Russ, the only reason that you're calling last week's offering, Miracle Offering Sunday, is because you believe the lie that this type of generosity is a miracle that only happens once a year. And here's the truth. Every Sunday, a miracle happens when you give. The miracle of provision, the miracle of blessing, the miracle of trust, the miracle of partnership, the miracle of breakthrough. 
And if the early church was marked by miracles in their giving, may it be true of this community as well. We are a miraculous people. We serve a miraculous God. We will sow miraculous seed, and it will result in a miraculous harvest. Maybe one of the most moving things that I heard over the last week was so many different, really, heroes of mine who either go to this church or maybe they now live scattered around the nation who called or texted me, and they said, Russ, 28 years ago, we gave generously to secure that building. And we refuse to allow the disappointment of this current season to be the reason why we don't trust God again. We bought it before, and we're going to help you buy it now. Here's the reason I give. Number one, it's a command from God. Number two, when I give, God blesses my life. Number three, when I give, God rebukes the devourer. Number four, when I give, I break agreement with mammon and I come into agreement with resource. Number five, when I give, I partner with others in the building and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Here's the reality. My paycheck is not my supply. My resume is not my supply. My giftedness is not my supply. My anointing is not my supply. My intellect is not my supply. My education is not my supply. My professional degrees are not my supply. Some trust in chariots. Others trust in horses. We will trust in the name of the Lord, for my God will supply everything that I'm in need of in accordance to his riches in glory. As I preached last week on 2024 being a year of supernatural breakthrough, the Lord spoke to me over the last number of days. He said, Russ, that breakthrough includes financial resource and generosity. For I'm getting ready to open a window of blessing to pour out more on this community than could ever possibly be contained. But I know this, I can't receive with a closed fist. Hear me, look, there's no special offering at the end of the sermon. You don't have to worry. We already took it. God provided more and we're grateful for it. It's gonna help us launch and be successful. I'm grateful. But here's what I know. What is better than momentary generosity once a year is regular faithful obedience week in and week out. And I can't receive with a closed hand, but if I'll trust God with the seed that he's given me, the Bible says he gives seed to who? The sower, which means I can't receive until I've got the faith to release. God, I'm gonna trust you with my seed knowing that as I give unto you, you will give back unto me, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing with the goodness of God. Now, every time I talk about finances, people get a little nervous because they remember that one guy who stole a bunch of money and that other person who ripped people off and that other person who taught about it in a real manipulative way. And I wanna let you know this morning, there ain't no manipulation. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not trying to convince you and be emotional to get you to do something that you don't wanna do. I'm trying to implore us as a community under greater fidelity and faithfulness to God. Giving your tithe and your offering is not about you helping the church pay its bills or buy 
buy another building. It is about you coming into agreement with what the scripture commands so that you can live a blessed life because you are the head, not the tail. You are a child of the most high and God is not done blessing your life. Let me end here. I know going into 2024, everybody got their New Year's resolution. This is the year I'm going to the gym. No, it ain't. This is the year I'm sticking to my diet. No, it ain't. <laughs> we always make these kind of proverbial commitments to things that really we don't have the power to follow through on. But I want to challenge you today. Hear, hear me, because I'm trying to express this in a spirit of gentleness without shame, condemnation, or any type of weirdness. Hear me today. If you're sitting in this room, maybe you're watching online, and you're recognizing, my financial life has been out of order. I haven't trusted God to give. I haven't trusted God with my tithe. I haven't trusted God with my above and beyond generosity offer. I, I haven't. Could you make your New Year's resolution in 2024? I'm going all in on my faithful followership of Christ and I'm gonna trust him with the treasures of my heart. Hear me, hear me, hear me. If you will trust God with the treasures of your heart, he will trust you with the treasures of his. And maybe nothing could be more important than in this moment saying, God, starting in 2024, I'm turning a fresh page. Well, I don't know how I could afford it. And I don't know how I'm going to be able to do it. And I don't know. And I just was going to show up early and move a chair at men's breakfast. And that counts as my tithe. And I'm just trying to figure it out. I got a little side deal with God. Me and God got a little side deal going on. I would implore you by the mercy of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Make 2024 the year that you begin to trust God with your finances. Because when your life, watch, comes into divine order, the anointing will flow from the top of your head all the way down and collect at the hem of your garment. God cannot bless what is out of order. But when you come into divine order, the blessing of God, like scripture says, will make you rich and it will add no sorrow. And my prayer for this community is that your life would prosper even as your soul prospers. It's time to get our money right. It's time to get our finances right. It's time to get our priorities right because the God that we serve is worth a life laid down in fidelity to what he commands. Come on, would you stand as we close?